All right, we're in 2 Thessalonians. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. We wrapped up last week the book of 1 Thessalonians. These are two coinciding letters written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Thessalonica. And uh, we're going to jump right into the second letter. There's no, no reason to take a break. They'll fit very well together. Paul is just continuing to teach and to instruct the Thessalonians on how they ought to live. So would you join me in reading chapter 2? We're going to read verses 3 through 12. We ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, since your faith is flourishing and the love each one of you has for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you among God's churches, about your perseverance and faith and in all the persecutions and afflictions that you are enduring. It is clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you are also suffering. Since it is just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted along with us, this will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels when he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength on that day when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at by all those who have believed because our testimony among you was believed. In view of this, we always pray for you that our God will make you worthy of his calling and by his power fulfill your every desire to do good in your work produced by faith so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified by you and you by him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, as we approach, humbly approach, these words written by the Apostle Paul, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, these words that have been preserved for the last 2,000 years, that we might hear them today and believe and entrust our lives to you who judges justly. Father, as we we hear things in this text of things of growing and flourishing faith and perseverance through trials, we're encouraged that we might live lives like that as well. But we also hear in this text about the seriousness of your judgment, the seriousness of failing to respond to and obey the gospel. God, may you have mercy on us. God, I pray that all of us in this room today, and those of us listening online might truly and sincerely obey the gospel of Jesus Christ for salvation. And that you would use our lives, use our lives to to be ambassadors for you on this earth, to take this same gospel, this gospel that saves from eternal destruction, this gospel that gives eternal life, and use our lives to be ambassadors for you, that many more might hear and believe this glorious gospel. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Paul's just starting his letter. He does a a brief little greeting, and then he sort of goes into this sort of customary for letter writing of the day, uh, sort of extended greeting where he, he just sort of 
you know, by the inspiration of the Spirit, points out some things that, that he sees in them and some things that he wants to encourage them with before he gets into instruction. And so as we look at this passage, it's like, okay, it's not an instruction. It's, it's just sort of matter-of-factly stated and put it out there. What do we do with that? Well, what, I, what I'll do today is I want to make three observations from this text, and then I want to I follow up those three observations with some coinciding questions. I want us first to see what's in the text, and then to hold the text in front of us as a mirror and say, how am I living up to this? The first observation you'll see, if you have the handout in front of you, let's go ahead and fill in some blanks. The first observation on the handout is this. The Thessalonian believers were getting it right and growing in discipleship. They were getting it right and they were growing in discipleship. Paul says in verse 3, we ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so. He's, our, our thanks is, is justified, he's saying. Since your faith is flourishing and your love and the love each one of you has for one another is increasing. Paul sees in them tangible spiritual growth. Their, their faith is flourishing. What does it mean to flourish? It means to be growing in a healthy way, right? Flourishing is, you know, when you, when, when you know somebody and you, you see them sort of struggle through, through different circumstances in life, and then they make a major life change. Maybe they take a new job or they get married or they do something, they, they move somewhere else, and all of a sudden they begin to flourish. Life just starts to work for them. You see their strengths come out. You see them doing well. That's, that's Paul, what Paul is observing in the faith of the Thessalonians. It's flourishing. Their faith is, is increasing. It is, it is living in vitality. He says the love each one of you has for one another is increasing. What an unbelievable thing to observe about a church. The love you have for one another is increasing. That is a work of the Holy Spirit. I mean, think about that. Is, is the love that you have for the people around you right now increasing? Hopefully so, but that's not to be taken for granted. That's not an easy place to get to. We become irritated with each other. We become annoyed with one another. Our, our love for one another may grow cold. But Paul sees the Spirit working in their lives that the love that each one of them has for one another is increasing. So he says in verse 4, Therefore we ourselves boast about you among God's churches. Paul, being an apostle, has contacts and close relationships with many of the churches throughout the region, many of those churches he started. And as he interacts with them, he's boasting. Have Have you heard about the Thessalonians? These guys, man, they're flourishing. Their love for one another just keeps growing. Just when I think, surely that's, that's it. That's as far as they'll go. They keep going. So he boasts about them among God's churches. And he boasts about their perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and afflictions that you are enduring. We talked about a good deal of this in the first letter, so I don't want to get too repetitive, but it's, it's, it's good to be reminded 
of everything that the Thessalonian church has gone through. If you remember, when Paul went and planted this church, he planted it, and immediately there was persecution. Immediately there was, there was incredible pressure, so much so that, that Paul had to leave the city. He couldn't stay there. And that persecution has continued. What, what would be our response to intense persecution? It's worth asking. How would we respond if, if all of a sudden the, the public in general just turned against us and decided they didn't like our message and started working to shut us down? If, there was, if you had to drive through a, a crowd of protesters to get in here today, I mean, so many of the things that we take for granted, they persevered. Their perseverance and, and, and faith in all the persecutions. They didn't just persevere, they, they persevered with faith. They persevered believing that God was good. They persevered believing that the gospel was worth what they were going through. Not just persecutions, but afflictions that they continued to endure. This doesn't, of course, mean they were perfect. Sometimes, sometimes when, we, when we take people in the Bible, we sort of, sort, sort of take off the humanity, and we just see them as, as some sort of super saints that are different than we were. They, they weren't perfect. In fact, Paul is going to bring to their attention in this letter some of the ways in which they still need to grow, some of the ways in which they're not getting it right. But overall, these guys are the real deal. How encouraging it must have been for Paul to go, I mean, as he went from city to city preaching the gospel, to, to, to go and... and face what he faced in Thessalonica, yet walk away and, and a little while later look back and see a flourishing church, one that's holding strong through persecution and affliction, one that, that really is the real deal. I don't want to get too, I don't want to jump ahead to the mirror part too quickly, but you're going to see it's, it's kind of hard to, to resist thinking about this in our context Oh, how badly our world needs Christians who are real. We need true Christians. We, we live in a world where those, those Christians who have proven to, let's say, not be sincere, or those Christians who perhaps were sincere but have failed in public ways, those ones become the example that non-Christians point to. They become, that, they become the basis of their arguments against our faith and against our Christianity. They're constantly pointing out the places where the church has messed up or the leaders who have failed and saying, see, this isn't real. But the Thessalonians, they were the real deal. When, when Paul wanted to defend the faith, he could point to the Thessalonians and say, those guys are real. They're living it out. They mean business. Their faith is flourishing. Their love for each other is increasing. They're persevering through persecutions and afflictions. Are we setting that kind of example? 
are we, the church today, are we, Redemption Church, exemplifying faith in a way that, that, that others don't point to us and say, see, a bunch of hypocrites. But others point to us and say, you know, I may not believe what they believe, but they're the real deal. The Thessalonians were that kind of church. The Thessalonian believers were getting it right. They were growing in discipleship. It wasn't a one-and-done event for them. It wasn't like, oh, Paul came in and preached. Some of them believed. They're like, oh, we're Christians now. What does that mean? I don't know. We'll just call ourselves Christians and just keep living life the way we used to, like a lot of people do. No, they were growing. They were growing in their discipleship. They were becoming more, more like Christ. They were becoming more mature in their faith. They were getting it right and growing in discipleship. Number two, second observation. And this one, this one comes in kind of hard. And it's this. God takes the affliction of his people very seriously and will not withhold his vengeance forever. God takes the affliction of his people very seriously and will not withhold his vengeance forever. That's a lot to chew on. Let me, let me uh, go ahead and read, starting in verse 5. Paul, after speaking to the sincerity of their faith and their walk, transitions to this. He says, it is, in verse 5, it is clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom. You remember, our sermon series is, is called Walking, Walk Worthy, and And that's one of the things that comes up several times throughout these two letters is this idea of living a life that is worthy. But here, Paul is is jumping to the end and he's saying in, in, in God's judgment, you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you also are suffering since it is just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Things just took a turn. (laughs) And to give relief to you who are afflicted along with us, this will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful powerful angels when he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from His glorious strength on that day when He comes to be glorified by His saints and to be marveled at by those who have believed because our testimony among you was believed. Paul speaks so matter-factly of something so serious. And the fact that, that, and I'm just, I guess I'm kind of going off of my experience as I read this and making assumptions that yours would have been similar, perhaps that's not a fair assumption to make. The fact that, that this stands out so much to us as, as almost seeming out of place points to the fact that we as a culture and as a society have really drifted quite far from understanding the seriousness of God's judgment. Again, maybe it's just me, but I think, I think these words fall heavy on modern ears. Judgment. Eternal judgment. 
vengeance with flaming fire. I thought this was a gospel of grace. I thought this was a God of love. Yeah, it is. His grace is demonstrated in that He takes upon Himself the vengeance that you and I deserve and that everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ as Savior escapes God's wrath and instead receives His grace. But all who refuse to receive the gift of salvation that comes from God sending His only Son into the world to die in our place, still stand condemned under and under His wrath. That's heavy. And yet it's biblical truth. It's as real and as true as anything else we see in Scripture. God takes the affliction of His people very seriously. Two, two things here. The seriousness with which He sees their affliction and the seriousness of His coming judgment. Two things that I want to look at. The seriousness, first of all, the seriousness with which He sees the affliction of His people. Our world is full of injustice. Our world is is full of people suffering in ways that that don't ever seem to balance out. We live we live in a world where people are constantly violated by others in innumerable ways, really. When you think of of all of the things that that people suffer at the hands of fellow sinful man. And then specifically what Paul has in view here is is the injustice being done against the church. What what should the Thessalonians what should their response be to persecution? If we were to live out the scenario I, I, I just briefly mentioned earlier, you know, where we weren't allowed to meet and people were protest, people were angry with us. What should be our response? And what should be the, the response of the Thessalonians as they as they continue to face these persecutions and these afflictions because of the gospel? Their, their response should be to trust in the God who is just. To trust and believe that He takes those things very seriously. When we don't see repayment for injustice right away, when we don't see the guilty get what they deserve immediately, we think they won't get what they deserve. We think that that, that the world is just like this. It's just a bad place to live. We need to know and believe that God takes, takes those actions very seriously specifically when they're committed against this church. When people persecute the church, and when people do harm to God's people, that that warrants and will get a serious response from God. He will not withhold His vengeance forever. We live in a world that has kind of made up this idea of karma and 
a, a world that, that expects things to sort of balance out in this life, and they don't. They just don't. Sometimes the bad guys win. And some, sometimes things just don't balance out the way we wish that they would. Take heart, Christian. God takes this injustice very seriously. And there will come a day when he will make all things right. That is both comforting and terrifying, isn't it? It's both comforting and terrifying. It's comforting to know that, that God sees, that God cares, and that, that he is, He's not calloused to the sufferings of His people. He is moved by the sufferings of His people. He is indeed, He, he, he feels it as, as deep as anyone could. He takes it very seriously and He will not withhold His vengeance forever. What does that look like? Paul says in the middle of verse 7, this will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with His powerful angels. There is coming a day, and this came up in the first letter, there is coming a day when Jesus will return to the earth. This is known as the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven, and He will come with powerful angels. We're going to, this summer, once we get through 1 Thessalonians, which will happen somewhere around end of June, early July, or I'm sorry, once we get through 2 Thessalonians, um, we're going to spend a few weeks in the Psalms before we do fall kickoff and get into our fall series. And uh, one of the first Psalms we're going to look at is Psalm 2, which speaks of the power of God before the nations. You have to understand that when you weigh the strength and the might of earthly kingdoms. You know, we're, we're just somehow found ourselves in, in, this, in this situation where we could end up at, in, in the midst of a nuclear war. And what's scary about that is nuclear weapons are the most powerful thing that man has ever developed. And, and they have the, the capability of doing so much destruction so quickly. But we have to understand that when Jesus comes, along with his what's, what Paul refers to here as powerful angels, He is coming in the power of a hundred trillion nuclear weapons. He is coming with infinite power and strength. There is not a, not a weapon large enough. There is... There is not an army strong enough. There is nothing in all of creation that could even begin to stand before the Lord. Paul says that the revelation of the Lord Jesus, when He comes with powerful angels, when He takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the Gospel of our Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ. Some commentators believe that that's a way of referring to Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles being those who don't know God, and the Jews being Jews who have rejected the Messiah, on those who don't obey the Lord, the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Jesus is coming in all of his power. 
with a heavenly army with him. He will take vengeance on the people of the earth. That's terrifying. Everything we've been through as the human race over the past two and a half years will seem like the good old days. And the things that are to come before that day when Jesus returns, even those which will be so much worse than anything we've been through, will seem like the good old days when he comes in his vengeance with flaming fire. It goes on. It gets worse. They will pay the penalty, verse 9. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength on that day when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at by all those who have believed because our testimony among you was believed. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from His glorious strength. This is quite literally hell. To pay the penalty of eternal destruction the Lord's presence and His glorious strength is not where you want to be. It's sobering. It's just so sobering to think of this and to think that real human beings will spend a real eternity in either a real heaven or a real hell ought to bring sobriety to our lives. What we do in this life matters. How we live our lives, and most importantly, how we respond to the gospel of Jesus is of eternal significance. There's so much weight to that that we can't even we we can't even bear to to think of it all the time. It's it's such a heavy and weighty reality that we live in. Nonetheless, it's true. And Paul uses this in two ways. He uses this, first of all, to comfort the Thessalonians. You think, well, some comfort, being comforted by people's eternal destruction? Well, that just speaks to the fact that we, as as Christians in, in this cultural climate, haven't really faced persecution yet. When, when, when your loved ones are being slain, when everything that you have is being taken from you, when, when I don't, I, it gets worse, but I don't want to get graphic, when horrible things happen to you in your family, you will desire and long for God's just vengeance. And that's the situation they're in. They're facing horrible persecution. And Paul reminds them, Jesus takes your affliction seriously. Hang in there. Persevere. Continue in faith. There will come a day when He will make this right. He uses it to comfort them, but He also uses it to motivate them. He uses it to fuel their prayers. Let's look at number three. We'll move on to the next verses. The third observation from this passage that I want to make is that these truths 
the first two things, the sincerity of the faith uh, uh, and the walk of the Thessalonian believers and God's coming vengeance, those things, these truths fueled Paul's prayers for God to continue working in and through them to bring glory to the name of Jesus and His church. That's a long one. I don't always do points that are that long, but I I couldn't stop. I didn't know where to stop. (laughs) These truths fueled Paul's prayers as he thinks about the Thessalonians and how they are have have become an example to the other churches of how sincere faith ought to be lived out. That made him want to pray for them. And as he thinks about their afflictions and the persecutions that they're facing, and as that leads him to think, yes, but Jesus is coming one day. When you see people you love suffering, you want things to change. God, what? When, Lord? When? When will this end? Paul's comforted because it will end at the return of Jesus. These truths fueled his prayers for God to continue working in and through them to bring glory to the name of Jesus and his church. Let's look at verse 11. In view of this, what he's already said, in view of this, we always pray for you that our God will make you worthy. There's that word again make you worthy of his calling, and by his power fulfill your every desire to do good in your work produced by faith so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified by you and you by him according to the grace of our Lord, the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, Paul's response to what he's seen take place in Thessalonica is he is he's driven to prayer. He always prays for them. God, make them worthy of your calling. God, fulfill their every desire to do good. Do your work, the work produced by faith through them, so that the name of the Lord Jesus will be glorified by you and you by Him, according to the grace of our Lord Jesus. What truths are fueling your prayers? You know, I was thinking this morning, but we've become pretty good at praying for people who are sick or facing crisis, worldly, worldly crisis. You know, they lost a job or something like that. Um, and that's good. We should not lose that. We should not sacrifice that for something else. But when you think about the things that, that you know, Paul says he's praying for, and when you think about the things that Jesus instructs us to pray for, that's, that's what we normally pray for is meant to be just a small piece of our prayer life. What is almost our entire prayer life is meant to be just a small piece of what we pray for. We're called to pray that God would glorify Himself through His people. Are you praying prayers like that? Are you praying that God would make Himself known through the people of Redemption Church? Are you praying that Jesus Christ would be glorified in our community? These are the kinds of prayers that, that Paul's praying that, we are, that are modeled for us in Scripture that we should be praying. 
they should be fueled by what we see going on and what we know to be true. And if you haven't noticed, what we see going on is that we're living in a world that is desperate for truth, is desperate for a Savior. A world that is just completely lost, completely confused, completely turning to all of the wrong things. Every single day that you wake up, this world gets further and further from the Gospel of Jesus. We need a church that's the real deal. We need a church through which Jesus can be glorified. We need believers who take this seriously. So with that in mind, let me ask you three questions. The first one, and these are on your handout if you want to, if you want to fill them in so you can continue to reflect on them. First one is this. How is your walk? This is an awful thing for a preacher to ask a congregation. Because it's, we know the answer, right? Like the, the, it's, it's like me saying, hey, are you praying enough? Are you reading your Bible enough? The answers are always no. The answer, you know, I don't think any of us ever, maybe there are seasons where we feel like we're, we're doing well in those things. But as broad and as, as general as that may be, no, seriously, how is your walk? Because the world has enough examples of fake, hypocritical Christians and churches that are full of greed and idolatry and leaders who have failed morally to live up to the things that they have preached. The world has enough of those examples. We want to be the real thing. We want to be true and sincere believers and followers of is that you? Are you fitting into that category? Are there, are there things that are putting that at jeopardy? Are there secret sins? Is there a perhaps a lukewarm or cold response to the gospel? What are the things that are, that are keeping you from really living like, like the Thessalonians as an example? Again, they weren't perfect. I'm not saying we should be perfect. Well, we should be perfect. I'm not saying we will be perfect. But we need to be the real thing. We need to be the real thing. I see so much stuff, especially on like social media and things. You see people wanting to argue against the faith. And the first thing they do is they point to examples of Christians who either weren't, weren't real sincere believers and have embarrassed the church, or they were and they've just failed in a very public way. And that's going to happen. That's, I don't know if this is the right way to say it. That's okay. We don't have to freak out about that. We don't have, we're not responsible for how everybody else is living their lives. We're not responsible necessarily for the perception that others might have of the Christian church. What we are responsible is for living out a true and sincere faith in Jesus Christ. Are you doing that? Is your life consistent from Sunday to Monday, from Monday to Tuesday? You know, is, are you a Christian every day of the week? Would your, would your co-workers be surprised to know that you're here today? How's your walk? Two, are you trusting in Jesus to make things right at his return? 
Are you trusting in Jesus to make things right at his return? Paul does not raise up an army to go and carry out vengeance against the persecutors of the Thessalonian church. He points them to the God who has already raised up an army and who will in his timing, according to his will, carry out vengeance. It's not our job to get revenge. We, Our job is to trust in Jesus. Our job is to believe that he is a good, just, righteous God. And that according to his wisdom, and according to his timing, he will repay with affliction, according to this passage, those who have afflicted his people. Three, are these things motivating you to pray more for Jesus to glorify his name and his church through you and through us? That was Paul's response. Therefore, I think we ought to consider if that's our response. Are we motivated by the growing and increasing faith and love of the people that we see around us? And are we motivated by the reality of God's coming judgment to pray? I know that's... Those are, trust me, I, I, didn't, I didn't write this passage. Those are complicated things to bring side by side. The growing, sincere, true faith of the Thessalonian believers and the reality of Jesus' coming vengeance, the eternal destruction that will fall upon those who have rejected the gospel, those are, not, those are not two things that are easy to preach or to consider side by side, yet that's exactly what Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has done. And he says, in view of this, we always pray for you. So in view of these things, we ought to always be praying and we need, to, we need our prayer lives to grow beyond a list of people who are sick or afflicted. And we need our prayer life to grow to include things, like Paul says here, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified by you. Let's pray for Jesus to glorify His name and His church through us. As you pray for so-and-so to get better from the, from the disease or the sickness that they're facing, pray not only that they get physically healthy, but pray that somehow through that situation, Jesus would be glorified. Pray that His church would grow. Pray that God would use their affliction to bring glory to His name. How is your walk? Are you trusting in Jesus to make things right at His return? And are these things motivating you to pray? To pray biblical prayers? To pray the kind of prayers we are instructed to pray?